Hello everyone! The guys from Monster Party joined me to help celebrate Halloween with a special four-part series on the classic Universal Monster movies The Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Mummy, and Frankenstein. We discussed the historical significance of each film, what the film meant to each of the guests, and answer any of their legal questions about the Universal Monsters. The first film discussed is with James Gomez on The Wolfman. Hope you enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, please meet our first guest in our Halloween special, James Gomez. James, how are you today? Great, Josh. How are you? Fantastic. For those who don't listen to Monster Party, James is one of the four hosts for Monster Party. And, and James, could you introduce our attorney listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, like a lot of monster kids, I grew up reading famous monsters of Filmland and being in love with classic monsters and uh, Japanese monsters as well, uh, Godzilla and his ilk. Uh, as I grew older, I, uh, I decided to go into entertainment. I had gone to NYU Film, and uh, I, my love for classic monsters never wavered. I was fortunate enough uh, to meet uh, my three Monster Party co-hosts a little bit later on in life, and we discovered this uh, you know, mutual admiration, like a lot of monster kids do when they meet each other. It's been uh, wonderful uh, ever since we started a podcast. You guys have gone all over. You were kind of like the leader in putting together your Japan adventure, weren't you? Well, we were uh, fortunate enough to take our dream trip, which we had daydreamed about for years, where we would all get to go to Japan together and look for Godzilla toys and other Japanese toys, Ultraman, Gamera, and all that. And uh, my 50th birthday was approaching. Uh, this was a couple of years ago. And so we uh, somehow the stars aligned and we were able to coordinate uh, between uh, the four of us and all go together. And we took a lot of footage. We were always shooting on uh, flip cam and GoPro. And we had a really talented editor uh, fit all that uh, footage together and have it correspond to the podcast that we did where we uh, went over our trip. And uh, it is on YouTube. Uh, it's called Monster Party Goes to Japan. And it's a fun hour, especially for anyone who thought that they might want to go and do that kind of fun stuff there. It is like the high water mark of geekdom, seeing you guys in Japan <laughs> together, going to Godzilla stores and seeing giant robot monsters fight and where you were having dinner. It's highly recommend checking out the footage, which... <laughs> Which brings us to you know, our first film that we're going to discuss for Halloween, and that's The Wolfman from 1941. Why is this movie important in film history, uh, in your opinion? Out of all the universal monsters, The Wolfman and the Larry Talbot character, as played by Lon Chaney Jr., uh, really uh, represents the only consistent through line in the entire genre of those films. Uh, he's introduced in, in that first movie in 1941, and then he, he appears in several sequels, the same character played by the same actor. And you never see that in any of the other Universal films. You know, Dracula is played by different actors, Frankenstein's monsters played by different actors. But, you know, here you have the one character who also happens to be uh, very sympathetic, uh, 
played by, you know, the same actor consistently in the same role. And it represents a sort of a through line. There are other reasons as well, which we might get into in this conversation, but that's, that's the main one. And when I, um, I, the first, uh, not in the Wolfman, you know, we, back in the day, we were subject to whatever was playing on, you know, on creature features on TV. And I think I saw Frankenstein meets the Wolfman first. And then I might've seen House of Frankenstein after that. Uh, and when I, piece together that this was the same character appearing in more than one movie with some continuity. I was so impressed and excited. So to me, that's, that's a, a big part of why it's, he's so important. What does this film and, and character mean to you? Initially, the character uh, was, was very, very sympathetic to me because he, under really no fault of his own, was under the spell of this curse. And having to live with that and to be tortured by it time and again, uh, there was something very, very identifiable about that. Even, I guess, as a child, I, I, and Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance was so strong that it, it got to me as a kid. Um, you know, here you had an adult who was dealing with something that he could not control. And I guess that, you know, kids feel that way a lot. Looking at it now, I just watched it again, and it it really sort of amazed me that this was filmed in 1941 and was to take place in England. And it was written by Kurt Siodmak, you know, a, a Jew who had escaped Germany and, and was working in Hollywood. So, I mean, what was going on in England in 1941? Well, you know, London was being bombed. And none of that is directly mentioned in the film but it's it's knowing that and being more sensitive to it now in that historical perspective it's it's impossible to distance the the context from it let's you know take a look at uh, lon cheney jr's performance because i was really enthralled by the character because we see him you know initially you know, he comes home to Wales because his brother has died. He is a tad playboy-esque. He's lived in California. He has his telescope sent over. And we introduced him. He's kind of a peeping Tom. And, and you know, by today's legal standard, would have stalked Gwen and seeking her out because he watched her through her window. And then as he becomes the Wolfman, you know, there is the metamorphosis in character from being kind of this cavalier, suave guy, you know, who walks with a, a cane because it's debonair to, he has this curse upon him and the horror that does to him. It's, I mean, it's a strong performance. Yes. And it's quite a juxtaposition. I mean, apart from peeping on Gwen, uh, he's, he's very aggressive. He will not take no for an answer. And she tells him no pretty often. And also, don't go out with an engaged woman, like what was he thinking, to, you know, he ends up cursed uh, because of it and a threat to others. Right. What was up with Bella Lugosi being, you know, playing a character named Bella? Was that, do you think that was like intentional <laughs> that they were just having fun with it or? Honestly, I don't think that they uh, put too much thought into it. And uh, I mean, uh yeah, that happened to be his name. Maybe they just thought, sure, why not? It's it's a little on the nose. You know, when I was watching the credits roll, I was like, seriously? Was it just, let's get Bella to do this and we'll name the character after him? 
to uh, it, I mean, it's an extended cameo for him and, and that I do appreciate, but I, I did find, find the uh, character's name a little humorous. It is. It is. Maybe he just w- went through all these potential gypsy names and nothing sounded as good. So he said, all right, why not? Yeah. And it, you know, it does raise an interesting issue with the gypsies coming through town and uh, that's just, you know, it's not a phenomenon we have in the United States. And I don't know if that was an outcry from what was happening in Europe with World War II. But the fact that was a plot point is not something you would normally expect. True. Uh, it, it throws in a wild card. I don't know how common that was, you know, back then and there. Uh, but, you know, going back to the World War II element as well, you know, you, it struck me that you have Lawrence Talbot as someone who's, who's sort of become Americanized to the point of losing his accent coming home to, you know, his, his paternal roots, uh, which, you know, you can read it into the glory of, you know, America and England. And at, again, at the time of World War II breaking out and, and maybe some sense, and again, I know this sound, might sound really pretentious, but uh, that the way that it was structured might have reflected some of the concerns, tensions, and sensitivities that were going on at the time. That does make sense. Since the United States was dragging its heels to get into the war, the, uh, there were a lot of disturbing things happening in the United States with those who were in the American Nazi Party, the Bund, and you know there were Nazi summer camps that lasted up until 1941. There was the giant Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden. While there was, what, like 25,000 Americans in attendance, you know, at this pro-Nazi event, there were 50,000 New Yorkers outside, you know, telling, telling the Nazis where they could go. But I could see that from a, you know, having that allegory of, you know, America, you know, dragging its heels to, to get involved. Yeah, it's interesting to see it in that context now. Yeah, and they might not have intentionally done that because they didn't know what the future was. And it's tough for us to think exactly how they felt with the uncertainty that they had, you know, it would have been comparable to us say like immediately after nine 11 of figuring out what was going to happen and, you know, would we be safe and how do we meet this threat? Well, we can, we can be sure that the, the one thing that, that, that was felt was anxiety, you know, and there's certainly plenty of that in the movie. Oh, completely. Now, do you have any legal questions on the film that I can answer for you? Well, uh, it, it, the question, you know, there's a big question seems to be about liability, um, you know, because obviously we're following Larry Talbot as a protagonist and, and we understand that he is guilt-ridden. Uh, but then there are some elements out of his control, certainly. But the people around him, it never struck me so hard as when I just recently watched it is, is how liable the gypsies were. That's a good question, and it's a complicated one because we have there's the gypsy issue where they took no precautions against Bella, who was a known werewolf, you know, obviously to himself, but to his mother and how many others that they didn't warn people. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they knew that Bella would turn into a werewolf that night, and thus he could harm someone that night, and they took zero precautions to contain him in any way, whether it was a little cell of some kind or 
asking for the use of somebody's basement, <laughs> you know, in order to, to contain him. They did none of that. Moreover, Bella knows who his first, who his victim is going to be that night. So, <laughs> right. and he doesn't warn her. He just sends her away. There's a concept in the law called duty to warn. And if you know that somebody's going to be a specific, you know, come to a specific harm, you need to warn them. And he had direct knowledge that he, as a wolf, would kill her. And right. that's, it's not preordained. He could have said, you need to get out of here now. Something bad's going to happen. Now, granted, maybe saying I turn into a werewolf would just freak around. She think, would think he was crazy. But he could have said there's a threat on your life and you need to leave immediately. And he could have gotten himself chained up because, as we learned with Larry the werewolf, that you know he does step in a bear trap. So it's not like he's invincible. So there could have been a way to have contained him in some way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And his mother, Maliva, is just as liable and guilty uh, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it gets a little stranger with Larry because he goes through denial of like, yeah, right. I don't need this to wear this amulet. And that's a little sticky because if, if he had knowledge that he could turn into a wolf, and I understand with the first one, maybe he didn't believe it because it is a far-fetched you know, uh, tale to hear that, oh, you have the curse of the werewolf now. Because it's, you know, it's normal to go like, okay, dude, I believe you. Time to go home. But after turning into one, it's like he doesn't take any precautions. He just spends the time being freaked out about his situation, as opposed to, it's like, I'm in a giant estate. There, there should have been a room that could have contained him as a, as a wolf. Oh, you know, all, as tortured as he is, and as well-meaning as he is, and as sympathetic, at the end of the day, if, if you know that this is your curse and that you're going to kill people, do you have the, the option of suicide? And if he knows that, that silver will do it, um, you know, you get a silver bullet and, and you do it. That's an interesting question with the assisted suicide laws that we now have, because, <laughs> you know, like suicide is, you know, viewed as being illegal uh, because we want to you know, pr- protect life. And, you know, in the religious context, it's also viewed as a venial sin that there's no forgiveness for it. So there's a you know, very strong societal policy against suicide. And changed on that when somebody has the, the horrific disease that has no chance of being cured, and there's a variety of factors that have to be met in order for you know, somebody to qualify for an assisted suicide statute. And it's also done at the discretion of a doctor. With Larry, it's a little tougher because you know, he could argue that it's not suicide, he's trying to stop the wolf. And that it's a defense of others and, and lethal force is justified, which is, you know, really turning that concept on its head when it's, you know, the same individual who goes through a horrific metamorphosis as the reason to, you know, to end their life with a, with a silver bullet. Uh, that, it's an interesting issue uh, because of that. Well, uh, it would have been interesting the series go there, and you know some of those issues could have definitely been explored, uh, and it would have been interesting. You know, the scene in the first movie where he walks into the church and everyone's looking back at him, and 
uh, you're wondering, you know, it, it leads you to wonder, all right, what, uh, you know, he seems to be a very, you know, debonair, double, double may care bachelor. And yet, you know, what, what is it that's going to make him, um, you know, look to the heavens and, and plead for, plead for help. I, I do keep looking back to Maliva though. I, I think a lot of the fault rests on her. She, she appears kind and wise and matronly, but you know, freeing uh, Larry from that bear trap doesn't really do anybody any favors, you know, helping him escape. I think more than anyone else, she would have to be the person to point blame at. Do you agree? She definitely has some liability, but it gets problematic because, uh, you know, is she a co-conspirator? Is she an accessory after the fact? You know, is she enabling it? It... It's an interesting question because she's not the one who technically pulls the trigger on anyone. And, you know, while she might have enabled two werewolves and, you know, her, but her statement about through no fault of your own, it's like, well, that's not 100% accurate because neither werewolf took any precautions to stop their actions. And at least with, you know, with her, she did give Larry, you know, that amulet that, that was either supposed to keep him from changing or, you know, somehow protect him. And, and he doesn't wear it. So it, it's kind of complicated. Uh, I do think letting Larry out of the bear trap did put her into a conspirator or, or at least an accessory position. So that would give her some liability as well. So, but the, but the other half of this is Larry's own father and friends is they don't believe him when he's asking for help saying like, I turned into a werewolf. I mean, he, he pretty much admits what his problem is and they think he's nuts. And that's an interesting well, phenomenon. If I remember correctly, the doctor recommends uh, that he be, put under observation and John Talbot uh, argues that and says, no, my, that boy stays here. And um, well, you know, you've, you've been given this advice and now you're pretty stubbornly, you know, clinging to whatever, whatever it is, you know, arrogance or, you know, um, family pride. Um, and uh, you can understand why. And Claude Rains is also so good in that role and he's got so much conviction. You can completely get, why he would feel that way and put his foot down. It's his son, and he just lost another son. But at the same time, suddenly, you know, it, it, it would seem that, that now he, he would have to carry a little bit of blame as to what's going to happen next. Do you agree? Yeah, but you get into the issue of foreseeability because you could look at him with a straight face, or he could, you know, have an attorney argue with a straight face of people turning into werewolves is not something we recognized as a problem. So the foreseeability factor goes out the window and it's one thing if if Larry was a known threat to people and Larry was admitting that he could cause you know specific harm to known individuals versus I turn into a werewolf and I can kill people that's that's still tough for anyone to swallow if it had been you know keep me mm. chained up because I'm going to turn into a werewolf and then you guys will believe me and 
because I'm locked up, I can't harm anyone. Like that would have gotten everybody on board pretty quickly with like, whoa, this is not okay. Uh, we have to figure this out right now. <laughs> but right. On the flip side, like how many fathers have to put their own sons down? You know, because I don't think they were planning a sequel initially because it's, you know, it's father kills son mm. after losing, you know, right. you know, the, the, his oldest son. So like that, that's a, you know, the father pays for his arrogance or for doubting what his son was saying because he has to kill his own kid. And like, that's gut That's true. Really tragic. Yeah, it, it's a real tragedy. Gwen is lucky she doesn't get out or, you know, you know, escapes without a, a scratch. So she doesn't have the curse and it's lucky the father doesn't, you know, uh, get infected either. Uh, but, you know, there, there's some heartbreak to this. Uh, about the peeping Tom angle uh, that you mentioned. Uh, now, you know, there, there are laws that protect people's privacy against that kind of thing. But um, back then at the place and time, uh, and it's certainly handled extremely cavalierly in the movie, uh, it's really creepy looking at it now. But uh, do you think that back then things were different enough so that it wasn't as much of a concern? I don't know. This is one of those things where I want to go talk to my grandfather who's 96 and ask, did this sort of thing happen? Like, were there, I mean, cause like we've had peeping Tom statues on the, on the books for, for decades that we don't want guys in trees with binoculars or telescopes looking at ladies through windows. That's just creepy and wrong. And it's weird that that's mm-hmm. the plot point. Now it would be, <laughs> you know, like, and, and when some of the states actually named their laws prohibiting peeping toms, like, you know, peeping tom statutes, you know, California doesn't. Ours is, you know, it's, it's an invasion of privacy and that, that's what we leave it as. But there are several states where they, you know, they clearly call it peeping toms. And one of them has even gone so far as to recently revise it to include drones because we don't want drones hanging outside of people's windows, basically doing amateur porn, watching somebody change clothes. Because let's face it, that's horrifically evil. And if anyone did that, we want to be able to prosecute them. And the fact that a legislature thought it was important enough to put it into the law meant it had to have happened. We don't generally write laws proactively going like, hey, this could be a problem. Most laws are written because it was a problem. So that's disturbing on multiple levels. Turning to Larry, I don't think the initial peak at Gwen was intentional, but he kept looking. And that's the creepy part. Like if he had just, you know, been like trying to focus out on some hill to, to get the telescope functional and, you know, he caught a peak of her. It's like, whoops, sorry. Like that's, that's, you know, there's no intent there. But there is intent when you like focus in and you hang out and watch her put on earrings so you could then go to her haberdashery and proposition her for a date and make creepy references to said earrings. That, I'm like, I was uncomfortable watching that scene because that's just not right on so many levels. And you think in 1940, if a woman had pepper spray, she would have used it on him. Because that's just 
freaking wrong. It, it's so interesting to see it in, in the context of how sensitive we are to that kind of behavior today, uh, especially considering what happens to Larry as a consequence. Uh, you know, they, that's not what they were. I don't think anybody involved in the movie was thinking, okay, he's a bad boy. Now he's going to get punished for it in this horrible way. Uh, and even watching it now, you wouldn't necessarily take it to that extreme. But if you think about it, and, and he is, I mean, he's really, really aggressive with her. And it is creepy. It is horrifically creepy. If he had never seen her, never interacted with her, he would not have gone out to see Bella with Gwen and her friend. And he would have never ended up as a werewolf. That's the brute reality right. of it. And the message of if he had not engaged in being a peeping Tom and what could qualify as stalking, he would not mm -hmm. have been infected. On the flip side, only saving grace of the character is he's with Gwen and they're walking around when they hear the scream from the werewolf attack. And he goes to help. He goes to, to rescue the victim. That is a redeeming quality. It doesn't take away the creepiness that he did, but the dude definitely needed some sensitive sensitivity training, you know, a little ethical, you know, upbringing of like, we don't do that. That is not acceptable social behavior. And it's a crime. So, you know, do, do you really want to get prosecuted for that behavior? Maybe that moment in the story where he does come to a rescue is, is the moment that makes him uh, a sympathetic hero, right, where, he's, where he begins to be sympathetic because I, he finally does something heroic. I'd agree with that. And, you know, I mean, he's, he's the wayward son. I'm like, it's, and if you have a family culture where the eldest is managing the estate, you know, and he's the, you know, you know second born and is off in California having his life and career, you know, having to come back is a heck of a change. And uh, so it is, I, you know, I, I do feel pity for him, uh, but the story plot of him being a peeping Tom is extremely uncomfortable. Mm. There, are, as, there, it just occurred to me that there are also some class uh, tensions uh, you know, because Gwen's fiance is, uh, you know, the, the gamekeeper on the estate. Uh, you know, you've got, and certainly in Britain, you know, the, the class structure was so much more defined. Uh, and, you know, there were tensions that came along with that that are, that are included in the movie, you know, to its credit. So there, there's that aspect, too. Agreed. And, I mean, Gwen is an interesting character, too. You know, to evaluate because, you know, she does befriend Larry and perhaps Larry didn't have any ill intent and other wanting to meet her. And maybe her intent was to be his friend. So maybe that makes things, you know, somewhat acceptable, but it's tough to get over the telescope. And <laughs> yeah. You know, it's one thing, and like if, it, if they had handled it differently, you know, like if it was truly just an accident, and he thought I would like to meet her, like that, that'd be one thing. But the way that they have it play out, the aggressiveness, you know, not, you know, not taking no for an answer, it's just weird and uncomfortable, right? You know, because right, he was too too smug. 
Yeah, because, you know, the proper course of action of like, oh, I'm engaged would be my bad. I'm leaving now. Have a great life. (laughs) (laughs) My mistake. I'm sorry. Didn't see the ring. Mm -hmm. Uh, Time for me to leave. Uh, But that's not what he does. Um, This wasn't an (laughs) issue, issue of like sending a drink to a woman at a bar with her girlfriends, not knowing she was engaged or married. This was intentional conduct and, and knowing the situation he kept after her. And like, that's really not acceptable. <laughs> so, uh, right. Well, also when you look at it in the, in the context of how powerful the, the Talbot name was supposedly in that town, and then he just sort of comes swaggering in. It's like, Hey, you know, I, I can, I own this town. I own you. I can do whatever I want. Uh, it's not appealing. It's It's not appealing, but, to his credit, he never uses his last name. He tries to avoid That's true. it. Um, he, he wants to be known as him. So it's, you know, he's not entirely bad. You know, he does some things that are not acceptable and, you know, either today or in 1941, but he's not exploiting his power. At least, at least I don't think he is. That's that's a good point. He's not exploiting it uh, uh, in to the letter. However, I I do think that there might be something along the lines of you know he's kind of a stranger in town or he's coming back into town and it's not a big town so everyone more or less is going to know who he is if not at first then eventually. So I think he carries some of that arrogance even without having to uh, spell it out explicitly. Yeah, he, I think he does carry a, his privilege, whether or not it's known or not. And again, this could have been the situation of somebody who at their core is a decent person, but they are making mistakes based upon arrogance, privilege, sense of entitlement, that you know, doesn't mean you deserve to be turned into a werewolf and your father kill you. It means you should take a sensitivity training class and, you know, learn how your actions can impact others as opposed to you're going to turn into a violent animal and need to be put down. I mean, like that's (laughs) right. No one deserves that. No one deserves that. Even somebody who makes horrible mistakes and is creepy doesn't deserve to be executed. Agreed. Yeah. Hopefully they can be redeemed and learn. I shouldn't do those things. That's insensitive of me but that's not the movie we got. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so James, just, you know, as we wrap up this section, how do you like to celebrate Halloween? Well, I have been uh, fortunate enough to attend at least one of uh, my co-hosts, Matt Weinhold's Halloween parties, where he screens some of his uh, 60 millimeter film collection, uh, carefully picked for the occasion. And um, we show up in costume and that's fun. Uh, and if I'm uh, at home being a homebody, then I will put on certain movies, uh, John Carpenter's Halloween, uh, some of the classic Universal Monsters, or uh, Night of the Living Dead, the original, which is a great movie to put on at Halloween. Fantastic. Now, we, we've enjoyed a couple Comic-Cons together, and you've always been really good at coming up with costumes to wear. Like this year, when first time we ran into each other, you had your indiana jones attire on but like this year and last year you, 
you you did some really interesting cosplay and could you tell us about last year and then what you did this past July? Thank you. Um, well, uh, I, I like doing costumes that I don't see often that aren't too, uh, overdone. And last year I decided to go as Jor-El, uh, from 1978 Superman, uh, played by Marlon Brando. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. Um, because, you know, again, I think if the character hasn't been overdone, then there's certain, um, you know, the appeal to it. And, and I did get a lot of good, good feedback from the people at the convention. This year, I tried something different. The Michael Myers mask from John Carpenter's Halloween was really a repurposed William Shatner Star Trek Captain Kirk mask. So what I decided to do was to wear the Michael Myers mask with a Captain Kirk uniform. And that went over really well. Uh, I didn't, I, you know, didn't really know how many people would get the reference and many did not. Uh, you know, I heard comments like, oh, well, that's one way to do it. <laughs> you know, But walking, just walking through the convention halls, I would hear uh, fairly often, oh, I get it. I get it. And some, some people were really enthusiastic about it. And, uh, you know, I, a, a father had me pose with his son. And then as they were walking away, I heard the dad tell his kid, okay, there's a story behind that. And then he started telling him. And I was like, well, that's pretty cool. That is awesome. I was impressed, especially with Jor-El, because when bumped into you and Larry before the famous Monsters panel, I was like, rock on. Well done. Well done. That was... <laughs> you, you, you had the hair. You just you had the look. It was it was it was good. <laughs> Thank you. The, the hair is not easy. It's uh, I just didn't want to do a white wig, so I ended up having to uh, spray paint my hair, and it's it's like putting white out on it. And it can't. It's not fun. It's it's uh, something I'm going to have to try again to get it right. But um, thank you. I I really appreciate that. It was a lot of fun, and I'm not by nature someone who likes to get attention. Um, and so doing cosplay is not something that I ever really expected to do, but I understand the appeal because you step into a different character. And so all the attention you're getting, it's not you, you know, you're, you're kind of anonymous and that's, that's appealing to somebody who likes to be anonymous. Well, James, I want to thank you so much. Um, your co-hosts are up next and how can everyone find Monster Party on social media? Well, uh, we are on Facebook and YouTube on Monster Party TV. Uh, that's our handle for Facebook and YouTube. On Twitter, we are at Monster Party HQ. And Instagram is also Monster Party HQ. And, um, you know, the podcast can be found wherever podcasts are found. We're on um, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing you again in person soon. Uh, again, congratulations on the 100th episode of Monster Party. And thank you so much for sharing your views on The Wolfman. Thank you, Josh. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Up next, Larry Schroth from Monster Party will discuss Creature from the Black Lagoon.